0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Asha Ketty, much awarded and much loved Australian actress. Asha, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, me too. <laughs> Good. Now, you are incredibly recognisable in Australia. When you walk down a city street, I'm sure almost every head turns to have a look and people whisper, oh, that's Asha Ketty. <laughs> but you've said that you aren't really comfortable with the celebrity aspect of your work. Do you think that's different for women? The spotlight is different for women? Women, what makes you feel less than comfortable about that kind of recognition?
0: I think perhaps when I was talking about the uncomfortability, it was when I had just begun to lose my anonymity and that was quite a difficult thing. That was, you know, it was an, an unusual feeling and, and although I had spent many years dreaming of, of being <laughs> applauded for work and, and you know, recognised and, you know, there's a part of every artist I think that wants to be and needs to be recognised and appreciated – Once it happened, I didn't quite know how to sit in it comfortably. I almost lamented it for a little while, I think. I I think things have evolved now and I have become comfortable with it because it really is just part of life. I can't remember what it's like to walk down the street now and not be looked at. I I can't remember that, really. It's been, you know, quite a long time. And I'm more comfortable with it now, I think, also because I, you know, with age and experience, my confidence has grown, as my personal confidence has grown as well. So, you know, for someone that was playing roles and, and afforded the opportunity to play really wonderfully complex roles for many years without the recognition, without the recognition because of a com- uh, not being on a commercial show, for example, it was wonderful to have those 10, 15 years without recognition to, or public recognition, I mean, the way that it is, way it is now, to develop a strong sense of confidence and get some experience under my belt and find my voice which took a really long time i have to say i think i was very much a late bloomer in that in that respect so yeah, you know, I'm comfortable with it now. I think it's I think it it's okay. It just is what it is. <laughs> I'm more protective of my children now, I suppose, and how they might feel if people stop us in the street or whatever. Yes, have that recognition when mm. you're out with your family. Mm.
1: Do you think any of that experience is a gendered experience? Do you think a male actor who had the same steps in his career and then had the big public recognition sort of phase would have felt the same way or differently?
0: Quite possibly differently. I mean, you know, on top of recognition for your work on a show, as a female, you're also being looked at and and judged by the way you dress, the way you do your hair, the way you stand on a red carpet, the way you put yourself out there in your, your image, the way your image manifests. I think that it is different for women. And certainly that was an element that I was extremely uncomfortable about. Don't get me wrong, I love fashion. I love dressing up. I love those moments where I do feel quite extroverted, but I, I'm i not particularly interested in feeling judged like most people <laughs> and for my appearance to be discussed on a level that I find really irritating, I guess. And I think, you know, this is an interesting thing that still happens not that long ago. I was made aware of an article that was written by one of those dreadful magazines that are still in circulation. I haven't in, in publication. I have no idea why. And the title of it was 18 Things You Didn't Know About Asher Keddie." Eighteen. And I thought, oh, no, that's not ten, not twenty, not, eighteen. No, <laughs> and I thought, that's wow, that's kind of fascinating. Normally, I wouldn't bother reading these sort of things. And I thought, you might learn something. I might learn something about myself. <laughs> eighteen things. How extraordinary! Do you know what I opened up to see that it was... These were the kind of things that people didn't know about me, apparently. They were all mostly to do with appearance or to do with men. Things like, has Asha Keddie ever posed naked? Has Asha Keddie been married? Has she been divorced? Has she been pregnant? Is she pregnant? How many children does she have? Why is she a fashion icon? Why that? All these things, and I, I was reading it thinking this is extraordinary. And I looked at the top and it was written by a woman. And mm. it usually is. Now that really gets me. And I think, why, why as a, a female journalist, and this happens often, do you want to spotlight things that I find completely irrelevant, but also to nurture a kind of a toxic culture of celebrity that that I I mean a bit personally I just think it's really outdated it's really boring to read for a start but it's so skewed towards appearance, or being defined by a relationship, or children, or a man, or you know, I just find it fascinating that that kind of thing is still
1: still there, published, and still so much and at bought. the forefront. Yes, yes. I'm going to take you to the words of a philosopher, Susan Sontag, who yes. said, "The great advantage men have is that our culture allows two standards of male beauty: the boy and the man." The beauty of a boy resembles the beauty of a girl. In both sexes, it is a fragile kind of beauty and flourishes naturally only in the early part of the life cycle. Happily, men are able to accept themselves under another standard of good looks, heavier, rougher, more thickly built. There is no equivalent of this second standard for women. The single standard of beauty for women dictates that they must go on having clear skin. Every wrinkle, every line, every grey hair... Is a defeat. Do those words ring true for how we treat women in the public spotlight, women in your profession, Uh, women in acting
0: particularly? Yes, I, I think so. But I also do feel the women that I admire and the women that I think are working prolifically in their 50s, 60s, and 70s now are largely untouched by the pressure to remain youthful. So they're I not they're
1: not trying to look 20 or 30 no, they're just that's being right.
0: themselves. Yes, yeah, they're just being themselves and I'd, certainly I am of that mind too. You know, I kind of personally like the look, the way I look as I age. I like the way my friends look, my girlfriends, I like the way my sister does, and my mother and and I particularly I mean I'm an actress and so I think of actors when we're having this conversation. I think of Kate Blanchett and I think of Helen Mirren and and Julianne Moore and these wonderful Wonderfully gifted, driven, ambitious women who have great, strong voices who don't feel the need to inject themselves with goodness knows whatever you inject yourself with. They've got something different to say. And so they're the kind of people I admire, I guess, the kind of women I admire. And I certainly don't feel the pressure myself. But yes, I do agree that I think that there is, it has just become part of our culture now, too. I mean, I'm mortified when I see 20 year old girls changing the shape of their faces or plumping their lips out and or their cheeks or whatever it is. So it's become, it's somehow become about more than just trying to hold on to youth. It's become about wanting to look like someone else, appear- mm. needing to have a different appearance to the one that you're born with.
1: Yes, I agree with you. There's you something know? more going on than just get rid of that wrinkle. It's that's like right. there's a an increasingly standardised, even globalised mm. view about what
0: mm. beauty is, and yes. so if yes. you can
1: artificially get closer to that, then you try. Or a lot of young women try.
0: Yeah, I think that's more of a concern to me than than trying to remain youthful. That you know, socially and culturally, things are changing enormously, and and that that's part of it. And the pressure of things being so visual now with Instagram and there's so much imagery everywhere and people need to, and filters for your photos and, you know, people are wanting to achieve physical perfection, I suppose. I just didn't grow up like that. I didn't know what that really meant. I've always liked to look good. I have a very sophisticated, really stylish mother and and aunts and my grandmother certainly was, so I like to look great. And feel great, but I I don't want to look like someone else. I think things are changing now.
1: And you grew up doing ballet. That was your sort of first love, wasn't it? it And then made the move into acting. And, of course, you burst into Australian popularity and public consciousness through Offspring, Mm. uh, through playing Nina Proudman. Mm. And you won our Golden Logie, which is the highest (laughs) accolade in Australia for those listening internationally. When that moment happened, you did lose your anonymity and we've talked about that. What was the set of emotions? Was it, I've made it, I'm being recognised by the Australian community or was that there the sense of a lot of women feel an imposter syndrome sense when they get to a moment of recognition? Some think, gee, this pedestal's way too high. What happens when I slip off it? What did you feel at that time?
0: I felt a little bit of both those things if I'm really honest, and now with a bit of – with a different perspective and some distance from that time, I think there's certainly some truth in feeling like I was hoisted onto a pedestal and it was very, very high. The expectation was very high, Well, I I felt it was. You know, and that that was mildly uncomfortable. I thought, I'm not sure – I thought I wanted this, but do I? I felt like my freedom had kind of been thwarted a little, I suppose, and that I'd become someone in the public's eyes that was, I guess, the golden girl, if you like. And I wasn't comfortable with that label, and it was certainly you know, included in every headline over a few years. I wasn't comfortable with that label because I know who I am and I'm not a golden girl. You know, I have as many foibles and challenges and shortcomings as anybody else and and struggles and I didn't like the picture that was painted of me, I suppose, and I, I felt culpable in a way and I thought, have I put myself out there like that? Perhaps because I'm very private and I don't give a lot away Myself is—is this—is this a picture that the public have had or the media have had to conjure and, and paint themselves? Because I don't actually really let people know very much about me personally. You know, I, I had all those questions. I guess. Can we just talk oh, a, a little minute about that?
1: What it's like to choose such a publicly exposed profession mm. when clearly you are quite a private person. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Most people would think. People who go into acting, people who go into politics are natural extroverts who yes. want everybody to know everything about them. You yes. know, uh, that's uh, enough of you talking about me, I'll talk about me. You know, that kind yeah, of uh, right. person who's insatiable to sort of expose everything to the public. Yes. But you are obviously a very private person yes. at heart. Did you think about that when you first embarked
0: on an, the stage, the screen? I don't think I thought about it. I, what I, I found myself in that conundrum, I suppose. I felt like I landed in it when my profile became more public, I guess. You know, it's tricky because I think for a lot of creative people, a lot of artists, whether you're an actress, a painter, a writer, a director, a musician, you want it's very contradictory. You want that appreciation that we touched on before. You want the approval. You want to be loved, you know, and there's certainly those elements in me. You want attention and you want to your voice to resonate. But at the same time, in my opinion, to be an actor, for example, and deliver a story, you also need to be able to be in touch with and be able to channel very deep, intense feelings and emotions that are for the most part really private and they come out on screen through the performance so i guess for me i i have always the drive to to act to perform and deliver a story has come from that place so that know,
1: deep within that
0: deep within place the need to tell a story and for it to resonate and for it to be uh, as relatable as possible that's the drive for me. It's not so much the result; it's the process that is what I'm addicted to, I guess, and why I do it.
1: So you didn't set out to be famous. You set out to do this craft, this performance that yes, comes from I deep within. Not. You couldn't not. No,
0: I mean, for want of a better <laughs> way of saying putting it, I just couldn't not. You, you I, couldn't imagine a, a different life. No, I needed to tell stories, and of course, that began as a young child you know just entertaining family and friends and being fairly extroverted i guess and then it, you know it morphed into a quite a different intensely private drive through my teenage years and my certainly my 20s as well and it wasn't really until i was about well 27 28 i think i landed the role in love my way that i was able to acknowledge that acknowledge myself that i could i could actually do this I am, you know, I, I'd been given an extraordinary opportunity an amazing character, very complex character to play on a groundbreaking series, really. And it wasn't till then, my late 20s, and I thought, oh, I've just had this intensely private journey for so many years, wanting to perform, wanting to have a, a big life and, and elevate myself, but not really knowing how and then grasping that opportunity in my late 20s to, you know, find my voice as an actor and go for it.
1: Absolutely. And you've also woven that professional and public success with family life, with being married, with uh, having a family. When you had your child, you actually took two years off. And women are always interested in other women's uh, balance and decision making. How did you think about putting together professional life and family life, particularly given in your world, I presume that if you're off the screen for too long, people start going, Asha who? Mm. Uh, So there's a real... Judgment call about
0: how long to take off. Sure. Um, How did you weigh all of that up? You know, that was a really complex, complex choice to make. The two years off, and it just you just touched on something really interesting. And I think that often it's seen that women that they having to make a compromise if they take the the time off work to have the child and and raise it for the first year or you know have a long. I just didn't see it as a compromise. It was something I really wanted to spend that time enjoying and nurturing myself and my pregnancy, I really wanted that. I, it also coincided with a time where I was really exhausted. Right. I'd worked very, very hard for probably six to seven years at that point on back-to-back projects as the central female protagonist in the shows that I was making, like playing Ida Butros in Paper Giants and then Nina and Offspring and so on. So... I think it coincided the pregnancy coincided with a time where i was I really needed to take a break and I also this it mean it is complex that time actually now i'm thinking about it and and um thinking out loud. I also felt like I was saturated, and I thought oh god I, Even I can't look at myself on another magazine cover. I was getting really tired of myself. I I thought, surely it's time to step away for a moment and give everybody a break and give myself a break. And it was such a great choice to make. And it was also wonderful to have a partner like Vincent who encouraged it. I mean, he just didn't for a second say, well, actually, you're – Question my choice about it. You know, he just said, "Well, you know, this is this is this is absolutely your choice. Whatever you want to do, however much if you want to have six weeks off and go back, that'll be tough on you. But I'll pick up the slack if you or and or or stop working for a while, and I'll come look after Val. Or you know, if you want to take two years off, then I think that's valid too. That's it's your choice. So he's really great in empowering me in that way to my, you know to just support my own choices." So it just felt like the right thing to do. And look, to to tell you the truth, before I knew it, when he came, I just loved it so much, (laughs) being with him. Before I knew it, it was 13, 14 months and before I went back to work, but it wasn't really a plan, it just happened that way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: And the work you've gone back to do, you're doing some amazing, gritty, raw roles that mm. are really bringing to the public's attention some quite uh, hard, confronting matters. Mm. I've been watching The Hunting, which mm. <laughs> is a, a story about teenagers, in some ways, teenagers being teenagers, mm. but in today's world with mm. the online environment. Mm. And it has a very up-close and personal look at these young people's lives mm. and then how it reflects into the lives of the adults around them. I mean, the young actors in it are amazing. Aren't they
0: extraordinary? Truly yeah. extraordinary.
1: Yeah. And you've also done The Cry, which you've mm. talked about and said was an incredibly emotional experience for mm. you about a woman losing her children. Mm. Uh, mm. Do you think about the power of drama to tell women's stories in particular? Is that what attracts you to oh, absolutely. things
0: like the cry, the hunting? Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the many gifts of Offspring was that Nina Proudman you know as as kind of nutty and crazy and mad and and clownish as she appeared to be in some ways was in was an intensely complex woman to play and one of the gifts of that show was that she was it was her point of view of the world it was her you know it was one of the first shows here really that 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 allowed a central female character to drive every part of the show every choice that was made so, for me, as an actor and and as a woman, I have to say a female performer and an artist, I thought I don't know that I can ever go back from here. This is driving something like this ignited something in me that i I like about myself, and that is that i I am ambitious and and I am driven to tell female skewed stories and reveal more about our ourselves as as women. So that perhaps it can have an impact culturally and socially, so certainly since I finished offspring, the choices that i've made i mean that that was that was one of the things that was great about having the two years off is I had a lot of time to think too about really what I wanted to do next, really where i what kind of stories I wanted to tell the The cry and the hunting and now stateless I guess have been a it's been a combination of the right people around me, women, all women and the right stories coming to my attention, but also my drive to support female-driven work behind the camera and in front of it too for the protagonist to be female or protagonists in the case of Stateless. So, you know, it's just I couldn't be happier at the moment with the way things are evolving for me, but I also... I also don't want to sit in the middle of it and think, oh, well, that's just, I've just been pulled along for the ride. Because I do feel as if I have drawn these kind of projects towards me because, one, I want to explore them. Two, I think that there's bigger conversations to have rather than just sitting back, putting your feet up, and watching a TV drama. And I'm kind of really only interested in working on projects like that now where a bigger conversation can be ignited.
1: And can you just uh, briefly describe Stateless, what what it's about, and then for The Hunting, The Cry and Stateless, the main female connections there. Mm. For example, Anna Kokonos is the director of The Hunting, fantastic director. And for The Cry and maybe just a brief
0: explanation of Mm. Stateless. Sure. So Stateless is, is Kate Blanchett's production with matchbox pictures written by Elise McCready, wonderful writer, and Belinda Chayko. And it looks at onshore detention, we won't say across a specific time. And it looks at onshore, onshore detention in, in such a uh, an unapologetic but very sensitive way as well. So there's four very distinct points of view that look at what onshore detention, the impact that it had on people's lives, albeit very different lives and positions in life so it look that was an it's difficult to talk about this project and I will want, when when it's all it all comes together and I really look forward to that being a bigger conversation too again it's one of the most pressing issues of our time and you know which leads me to the hunting which is again one of the most pressing issues of our time for teenagers navigating a very different world to the way to the one we navigated when we were in our teenage years I think that's a a really important thing to look at. I think it's really confronting. It's certainly confronting for me raising two boys at the moment. How am I raising them? You know, it's it looks at uh, many things that we're all finding very difficult to talk about. About exploita- online exploitation, about toxic masculinity, about privacy and trust, and you know these things that because we grew up with such hardwired ideas about men and women and what was appropriate and but we were we were getting to know each other and exploring sex and trust and friendship in a way that wasn't judged publicly the mm-hmm. way it is now i think as adults now it's it's difficult to understand really just what they're navigating, teenagers, these days. And I think the hunting delicately explores that. But it is confronting to to watch. And I think, you know, teenagers and and parents have a lot to learn from it. Adults have a lot to learn from it. I feel like we're going to have to have a second
1: conversation when we've all (laughs) all had the opportunity to watch all of The Hunting and Stateless has been released.
0: female driven projects as well. Yeah, Yeah, which is fantastic. Bonnie Elliott, an amazing cinematographer, arguably the most in in demand cinematographer in, in our country at the moment, shot The Hunting as well as Stateless. And female directors, Emma Freeman, I can talk about these people.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's good we are talking about them because it's not the industry overall and there's been a study released about the number of women who have worked on Australian filmmaking since the 1970s. So it's a you know retrospective, yeah. how, how many people got to tell us our stories during those decades and it's found that only 16% of directors were women, only 23% of screenwriters and only 30% of producers. Why... Is it like that? Why has it been like that? And how quickly do you think it's changing?
0: I think over the last few years it's it's changing quite rapidly and I think that's a result of the Me Too movement. I think it's a result of gender equality becoming a much bigger discussion in this country in terms of screen funding as well. You know, there's initiatives like Gender Matters that have made a huge difference there and continue to make a difference. I think it's, I mean, it's frightening, isn't it, when you hear those statistics and you think, wow, that's incredible. But you see, my experience over the last 10 years has has been one that's been quite different. I've had many women in leadership roles around me that have encouraged me to become a leader in, in my industry as well. So I think everybody's, people's experience is different. I do think it's improving, though. I mean, certainly on stateless, for example, I think it was sixty-three percent of the crew were female, so that's addressing the balance. Yep, that's you know? fantastic, and I and I think very similar on on the hunting as well. So people are making are very conscious of making an effort now. Also, like for example, Screen Australia, in when they're funding projects, they re, they're requiring for fifty percent to be of the crew and the creatives to be female, which is very, very helpful. And and so I feel positive about the and hopeful about those kind of initiatives that they're going to stick and that we're going to encourage more women to participate. I also think, though, that it's perhaps these statistics that you've just read to me, is it wrong to acknowledge that perhaps women in the in the past, not so much in the last few years, in the past few decades have not felt confident enough to back themselves and speak up about their ambition. You know, there's been times in my life, I think, where I've I've not felt enough confidence to back myself and say, well, actually, I've got some stories to tell and I've got some ideas and I'd like to be a producer. Will someone teach me? Will someone help me? There were times when I didn't have the confidence to do that, or I may have been crushed ever so slightly by someone's comment about that. And being a sensitive individual, you know, in a creative industry, I've I've made it a mountain as opposed to the molehill that it may have been. Do you know what I mean? And then I've I do. lost confidence. So. I think women's confidence is growing, certainly in my industry, and we're feeling, um, <laughs> we're feeling pretty strong at the moment.
1: And do you think the Me Too wave was part of unlocking that? What, what did you think, think when so. Me Too first started? Did you look at that and say, that's the industry I recognise, that's the way it's worked, or
0: did it jar you in some ways? It jarred me in some ways. My personal experience hasn't been one of harassment I guess, over the years. Certainly I've experienced misogyny without going into specifics because you know of course there there again is a dilemma for women i think speaking out about certain instances if i were to do that i would be facing lawsuits and my family would be in emotional danger and my you know yeah it's very difficult to talk about these things however i can acknowledge and and, and admit that certainly i have experienced misogyny and i have been under i have felt very undermined at times But yes, I think the Me Too movement, when that, because it was just such a, it enabled an outpouring, I guess, for women to tell their stories, and I think that's completely valid and and must be supported. I think it allowed, again, what I'm interested in, a bigger conversation about issues of our time that are that are. really important to to discuss. I think we're getting braver about discussing difficult things, certainly that involve gender equality.
1: Yeah, I think Me Too has been an important part of that bravery. On misogyny in the industry, and I understand you don't (coughs) want to name names, but what form has that taken? Has it been about straight denial of opportunity? Has it been about aggressive personal treatment? Has mm. it been sometimes these things can be masked in a almost bitter form of politeness rather than right. being straight in your face? So,
0: how would you yes.
1: summarise what it's been like?
0: I would say the latter is probably true in my case, and certainly something I'm starting to understand now is that misogyny or narcissism or anything like that that I've experienced has, has come in a covert form. It's It's been much more covert than aggressive and outward, which has been possibly more painful and difficult to, uh, well, rather confusing and difficult to understand. And, and to point out. And to point out, because this is the problem. If it's covert and it's cloaked in a polite way it's so undermining that it becomes abusive. Whenever it's been happening to me, I've not known what's going on and I think that that may have personally to do with the way I was raised. I just didn't grow up thinking there was ever boundaries with gender that I should be aware of. My mother was was a great feminist and, and still is and she allowed me to do and believe what i wanted she gave she gave me good strong boundaries and it was important to her that i maintained dignity and that i was respectful to other people and to myself and uh, you know but i i also felt enormous freedom to do what i wanted to do i never i never felt con- constricted so I think I almost feel like there was a naivety involved as I grew up and, and hit my 20s and certainly my 30s when I, when I started to gain some recognition for my own work. And then my ambitions started to grow and I thought, oh, I might quite, quite like to reach out and diversify and, and explore different creative paths. I didn't know at the time that actually I was being subtly undermined by certain people, Or that I was being manipulated to think that perhaps I should just stick to what I know. Mm. Be a good girl. And I'm being a good (laughs) good girl. Don't make too much of a ruckus, you know. And at the time I felt quite, I lost some confidence around that and and I thought perhaps that's what I should do. I certainly don't think that now. I've learned from that, I guess, that as covert as it was, And whatever agenda was there for anyone doing that to me, I'm really kind of really disinterested in it. It doesn't touch the sides with me anymore. I just, you know, I've kind of come, I almost feel like I've come full circle as a 45-year-old woman. Back to that, that little girl that my mother was raising, letting me run down the street in her exquisite, long-trained wedding dress because I felt like it and I wanted to express myself, I almost feel like I've come full circle to that little girl who believed that anything was really possible and that that I didn't have to ask permission to, to do things, you know, or make choices.
1: That's a beautiful image. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Now, we have a series of uh, standard questions for the Mm. end of each podcast. We always try and find a fun fact, but in reality, most of the facts (laughs) we find are unfun. Unfun. Uh, And this is an unfun (laughs) fact. Of the top 100 grossing films of 2018, women represented 4% of directors, 15% of writers, 3% 3% of cinematographers, 18% of producers, 18% of executive producers and 14% of editors. When are we going to hit it so that that's 50% right down
0: that column? Wow, that is um that's dismal, isn't it? That's very, that's unfun. That's Hat unfun. <laughs> that's unfun. <laughs> Look, I I'm going to I'm going to speak positively to this because I think it's important to recognise, certainly around me, there are trailblazers. They are coming. I want to be a part of that push where we reach 50%. I think we're getting there. I really do. And I think women's confidence is growing enormously in my industry. Good. If you got that
1: gold Logie at home and rubbed it and (laughs) a magic genie came out and made you boss of the world for a day... Boss of the world, what would you change for women?
0: Oh wow! I, it, you know, I find this is a really difficult thing to think about. I can't name one thing. I don't think it's more a, a sense of it's more a sense of something. I think I would. And I can only speak to my own experience, my own emotions, I guess. If I could change anything, I would change the level of confidence that women feel about themselves from day dot, from being being little girls. And I hope that things are changing for for little girls now so they don't have so much to push against the way you and I have. Yes, and that they hold that confidence. And that they hold that confidence. Yeah, Yeah, as they grow. Now,
1: Virginia Woolf says... I will not be famous, great. I will go on adventuring, changing, opening my mind and my eyes, refusing to be stamped and stereotyped. The thing is to free oneself, to let it find its dimensions,
0: not to be impeded. Asher says, This has been the story of my life as an actor and as a woman, I think. That resonates with me so strongly. As an actor, it resonates strongly. Their journey, the process is is what ignites me and engages me. and certainly the, the, that's true of my life personally as well.
1: Asher, we're looking forward to seeing much more of you and the stories you're telling from that deep place on screen. It's been fantastic to talk to you today. Oh, thanks, Julia, likewise, thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.